Quest Community Church, living life as friends with faith through knowing God, loving others, and making a difference. Well, welcome again for another part of our series on uh, Ephesians. We're continuing to look at Ephesians 5 this week. We're actually looking at portions of the same passage we looked at last week. And uh, I'm adding to that a passage very similar to it out of uh, uh, 1 Peter. So why don't we take a look at our text today. Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then we're going to skip down to 31 because we dealt with the previous part last week. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. First Peter 3 uh, adds to that. It says, Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornments such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold and fine jewelry, fine clothes. Rather, it uh, should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. Skipping to verse 7, husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Lord, thank you so much that your spirit's presence has been with us today in worship and, and active touching us and bringing to mind things. Lord, we just trust your goodness to us that you're going to be here now to apply what we talk about uh, in the way that you want to in each one of our hearts, that you're going to bring freedom and wholeness and health and healing to our lives. So we just thank you and welcome you doing that. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so it's the second week in Ephesians 5. And as we uh, just to give a, a little bit of introduction, last week we noted that Ephesians 5 is often used around a very divisive topic in our culture today. It's used to define a lot of times roles of men and women. And typically the way that's defined in what is called a complementarian theology is to say that men are the spiritual leaders and women are the helpers and the followers. And we don't actually believe that view of the Bible. We believe uh, a little bit different view. It's, uh, we believe, uh, but not, neither do we bash that view. Uh, there's a lot of our culture that bashes the complementarian view, and we don't do that. Namely, because the fact of the matter is, most of the complementarians that I know in their theology treat women and empower women far better than our culture who thinks that they're backwards does. And, uh, and so there's no, there's no intent on our part to bash anything. But we do believe what's called an egalitarian theology, which says that men and women are created equal in all social, cultural, political respects, and that roles are determined by giftedness and the way God created you to operate and the purpose he created you for in life. And we believe that's the best biblical description of how the Bible teaches us. Now, there's, there's room to disagree, and that's the reason we're trying to be really friendly about that topic. If you want more interest in why we believe that, if you have more interest, then you can go back to a message we preached last September on the role, uh, the Bible and the role of women, and listen to that. But Paul's thesis for this uh, whole discussion is found in verse 21, and it says this, "...submit to one another out of reverence for Christ." It's, this text is actually a, a very practical text about how we mutually submit to one another 
in functional ways that make all of the closest relationships of our life work really well. Paul is discussing marriage, he's discussing church, he's discussing family, he's discussing job in this context. And he uses the metaphor of marriage to illustrate healthy ideas about relationship in general. So if you're here today and you're not married, just because we're talking a little bit more about marriage and using that illustration, it doesn't mean this doesn't apply to you because Paul is actually using that illustration as a metaphor for larger picture of healthy relationships. I do want to acknowledge, though, as I think Paul does, that marriage is an imperfect illustration for all of us, not just because we're imperfect people, but because uh, we carry baggage about marriage. Very few of us hear an awful lot about really great, good, happy, long-lasting marriages. I mean, they don't get a lot of press in our culture because a good storyline in our culture requires conflict, right? And when conflict gets resolved, the story ends and everybody, if we see it, moves off into their happily ever after. And that's where the stories end. I mean, Hallmark doesn't ever deal with the happily ever after. Why? Because the conflict's resolved and, quite frankly, the happily ever after is often just a little bit too ordinary for a good sitcom to deal with because it's all about we work, we play, we love, we have friends, we have kids, the kids grow up, they leave the home and we continue to work and play and love and have just a really great life, but it doesn't fit well in a movie. You know, the Hallmark movies and all the, all the marriages that tend to get press in our culture are the bad ones. And today I want to do some very, very practical talk from what Paul is dealing with and Peter is dealing with in a similar vein to Paul to inspire you to not only dream of more, but to find more in your marriage and in your relationships and your friendships. Let me just give a little credit where credit's due. Um, I changed an awful lot. I personalized a lot. I added stuff, but I do, but I, but I got the inspiration for how to approach this topic today from Andy Stanley, and I do use a couple of his points. And this, so I wanted to give credit where credit is due. I know this is a little disjointed, but I feel like I need to give two more introductory comments, mainly because I want you, I want to avoid any severe misunderstanding because frankly, as strongly as I felt about this text and speaking about this today, I also really struggled it, struggled with it because I have a lot of negative baggage from religious experiences in the past surrounding this, and I expect that you will as well. And so I want to just tell you that up front. If you start to feel like this is becoming a, a book burning or a record burning or a, some, or some other weird religious experience that we're inviting you into and you start having feelings like that, I want to say, no, that's not where we're trying to go. I'm going to do my best to not take us there. If you have those feelings, I want you to put them aside and try to stay with me to the end. Um, I will certainly do my best to not get us there, but I can't always t- control our own baggage and our own feelings and stuff. So my intent is to talk about some things at a very practical, concrete level today that will help you discern your heart and help you find freedom to love more fully, more vigorously, more deeply. I'm also going to do something a little bit different today as well. I'm going to talk most of my time directly to the men. Now, everything I say today applies to you women as well, even more so. It's typically been a men's talk, but frankly, our culture's changed a lot, and a lot of the stuff I'm talking about to you applies very directly to you as women as well. But I'm going to spend a little more time focusing on the men because what Paul and Peter are both doing in the text today is trying to give us a biblical view of women, not just a biblical view of your spouse, 
but a biblical view of all women, how we treat anywhere, anybody from our grandmother to our mother to our wife to the person, if you're single, you want to date, to the person you can't stand at work who just annoys you all the time who's a woman or to the woman who you hope never walks by because she's so attractive you can't stand when she walks by because you're way too tempted right? Any of those women we want you to have a biblical view of. And our culture screams at us every single day, everywhere we look, everywhere we go. Almost everything we listen to screams of a view of women that is against the opposite of what Paul and Peter and Jesus are trying to teach us. Everything we picture Everything that's presented to us, everything practically that is sung about women presents a view of women as though they were a commodity, something to bring a thrill to man, to men. A commodity is something that we purchase, something that we use, something that we enjoy, we acquire, we enjoy, we use up, and then we trade it in and we get rid of it. Women increasingly the same view of men as a commodity is portrayed to you. I mean, think about all the fantasy, the romance novels, the the movies, the reality shows, The Bachelor, things like that. All treat men as an object, as a commodity for your romantic fulfillment of your needs. I hope today that I can help expose in each one of our hearts where this view affects us and that we can all take steps to a healthier view. And I'll admit ahead of time, some of what I'm going to talk about today, and this is where you're going to have to deal with what I talked about before, some of those feelings cropping up are going to feed into the idea that what I'm talking about is just old-fashioned. And it feeds into the objection that many people try to have that the Bible, they say, doesn't really have a lot to say in today's culture about the role of men and women because it's out of date is what people object to it by saying. So today I'm going to start by showing you how that is so not true. How what the Bible has to say about the roles and how we view men and women is so insanely relevant and powerful. And that the words are of, of Jesus are and, and Paul and Peter are so absolutely relevant to who we are today and that our view of the first century is completely wrong when we think it's ancient and irrelevant to us. The first century was so much like we are today. I mean, in the first century, women were a commodity. They weren't just viewed as a commodity, advertised as a commodity. They were a commodity in every respect of the word. From pro- they were property. And, the, and, and while the Roman and Greek laws only allowed men to have one wife, the wealthier you got, the more slaves you could have. And the more slaves you could have, the more female property you could own. The more female property you own, the more you could do whatever you wanted to with that female property, whether it was beat them, sell them, or sleep with them. You could do whatever you wanted to with your property. And the fact of the matter is in the first century, women were such a commodity that the religions promoted, actively promoted prostitution. And men, if they had any wealth at all, typically had multiple mistresses and they would just discard them when they displeased them or when they were used up. It was very much that kind of a world, not that dissimilar from us, only just worse in the same attitudes that we have today that into which Jesus, Paul, and Peter all spoke. 
And when we look at the growth of the early church, the growth of the early church in the first and second century was largely women flocking to the church because it treated them with such great honor and empowerment and beauty. Jesus said, love one another as I have loved you. And his actions loudly stated, absolutely stated that that belonged, that statement applied to women as well in ways that the culture back then wouldn't even have even dreamed of. Jesus, interactions with the woman at the well at the Samaria, uh, Jesus actually mentoring and training up to be leaders. Mary and Martha, as a couple of his primary disciples in his group, we see this all over the place. When Paul says, submit to one another and talks about mutual submission, the people of his day were going, what do you, what do you mean? You mean I have to also submit to my wife? I mean, my wife, she's my property. She has to submit to me. She has to do what I want. She is there for my pleasure. And when Peter said, treat your wife with respect, well, we can say, well, doesn't everybody, doesn't, don't we all assume that? Well, in, in Peter's day, that was radical. And when we look at the way respect means, it means to grant or to assign honor. And the reality is, men, the jokes you hear and interact with in your workplace or over lunch with the guys or the views you see of women on TV aren't going to help you learn to honor and respect females. In fact, it will be the exact opposite. Now, some might say to me, but Ross, you don't know my mom, or you don't know how difficult my marriage is, or how difficult my ex-wife is, or how difficult and unworthy of honor this female is that I have to work with, this co-worker I have to work with. And to that, Paul says, I want you to initiate patient forgiving love toward them, just like Jesus. And Peter says, I want you to ascribe honor. The connotation of that is that they may not be honorable. And you are to put honor on them, whether they have it on themselves or not. You are to place honor on them by the way you treat them. Paul, Peter goes on to echo what, uh, what Paul says. The reason for this is he says, treat them with respect as the weaker partner. Don't, don't get uptight with that. A lot of people object to that and they say, well, well, all that means is if we took all the men in the world and all the women in the world and we stacked them up and we paired them off and we said, women, you're going to wrestle the men or you're going to have sprinting contests or weightlifting contests, the reality is that the women would probably lose more often than the men. That's all that means. It doesn't mean anything more. It doesn't mean anything about equality. And what it's talking to is in a world where the Roman legion made might right, Paul or Peter is introducing a completely new human ethic for how we treat each other. In a society where weakness meant subservience, where women were commodities, Peter says, ascribe honor and respect. And here's the kicker. Here's the reason why he says that. Because women are heirs with you of the gracious gift of life. All women in your life, no exceptions, are created in the image of God just like you. If they are followers of Jesus, they are co-heirs with you of the same one Father who is your Father. If they are not followers of, of Jesus, you are to pursue them as people that God desperately wants to be co-heirs with you, same family of the one Father you serve. Every time you look at a woman, whether you are looking at, some, you are looking at someone Jesus values enough to die for, and the question becomes, how can we... We love God and look at women and treat them as an object. 
as a picture, as a, as a commodity for our selfish enjoyment or for our own thrill. Our family, like yours, has a joke that has a little bit of meaning behind it. The joke is this. If my daughter wants to date somebody, I have to sit down with the guy who wants to date her, and I'm going to sit there and have a talk with him while I'm cleaning my shotgun. Right? That's, that's the, the shotgun part is the joke. I don't even own one yet. Yet. Imagine every time you meet and interact with a woman. If you're a single man, anybody you want to date. If you're married, your wife. Imagine God sitting on the porch saying, Go ahead. Go out and have a good time. I'll be sitting here with my shotgun. Or better yet, I'm tuning up my lightning bolts. Guys, any girl you interact with, whether there's romance involved, hoped-for romance involved, or no intent of any romance whatsoever, you are responsible. You are responsible to treat them with honor and respect, and you are accountable to their, your and their Heavenly Father, who sees and hears everything and knows your thoughts down to the motive to treat them with honor and respect. And women, any guy you see, you are responsible to treat them with honor and respect, and you are accountable before that same Heavenly Father for the way you treat them. So much so that Paul adds further incentive. He says this, he says, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. And what he's saying there is maybe, maybe your prayers are hitting the glass ceiling. Maybe your prayers don't seem to be answered, being, being answered because you have unrepented of sin in the way you are treating the opposite sex or other people. Because unrepented of known sin blocks our communication with God. So let's move on and talk about some practical ways we can renew our minds and change the way we think. And I think the first one is that we need to stop buying into the depth of the excuse that we often have and the church often promotes that we have. And the excuse goes like this, is that this struggle is going in the way we view women and struggle with lust is going to be an intense, lifelong struggle for us. Now, certainly, the journey is going to be a lifelong guarding of our hearts. But we say, oh, that's just the way we are as guys. We're always going to give our, we're going to give our excels an excuse to struggle with lust, and we're going to give our excels an excuse for the struggle being like Hamburger Hill instead of a conquered hill where we've actually established some good habits and a strong defense. For those of you who don't remember, it's made famous in a movie a little while ago, but Hamburger Hill was a famous world, uh, not World War II, uh, Vietnam battle. And uh, it, was, it took place over several days, just really intense, bloody, awful fighting, trying to take this hill. And, and the GIs would make it up a ways, and then they'd get pushed back, and then they'd have to go and retake the same part of the hill again, and they'd get pushed back, and they'd have to retake the same part of the hill again. See, the way we treat the subject of lustful, commodity, sexualized view of women gives the impression that it's an issue that's too difficult to truly renew our minds on all too often and find any kind of level of lasting freedom. And that simply isn't true. And because pornography and those issues are becoming a bigger issue for women, this is the, this is the vice versa applies for you as well. If the struggle remains intense, maybe you're revisiting Hamburger Hill all too often instead of taking the hill and winning the battle and establishing a strong defense and learning to live a little bit more normal life. Second, let's look even more specifically 
at the question of what do you entertain yourself? Let's start with music. If you listen to any music where women are primarily spoken about for your erotic benefit, whether it's talking about women as one-night stands or just talking all about their beautiful bodies and how it makes you excited or, or treats them as, or refers to them as bitches or whores, I'm going to recommend you remove it from your playlist. Stop singing that song. Stop listening to it. I hear a lot of people say, oh, but that's just innocuous fun. It doesn't mean anything. Really? If you're like me and everyone else I've talked to, you find yourself singing or thinking the words of the songs you listen to when you go to bed, first thing when you wake up. You'll find yourself singing them throughout the day while you're in the car, not even realizing it, or at work. You'll hear the words coming through your minds, and you're going to try to argue that those words don't affect you, while at the same time, you will probably quote to me uh, leadership books and psychology books you've read that talk about positive thinking and positive words and how great of an impact those words, that you love these authors, how great of an impact words and thoughts have on our feelings and behavior, and you're going to try to argue that listening to these songs don't affect your view of life and others? Let me ask the question, what would happen? What would happen to the frequency of your struggle with lust if you didn't listen to lustful songs? Oh, but Ross, you're asking me to give up part of my culture. That's another objection I hear. No, I'm asking you to give up parts of your culture that are garbage in and garbage out. I've listened to all the music. I know that the, I know that some of the greatest guitar licks, some of the greatest beats, some of the best melodies, and some of the best creative lyrics just happen to be songs that treat women like commodities, objects for our use, our pleasure, and uh, the disposal. Moving on, the great you know country western song. I used them and I moved on and I found somebody else. Part of renewing our mind is to sift through our culture and keep and enjoy the good parts of it while walking the narrow path of sifting out those things that give us a view that is harmful to us. Why would you be a disciple? Why would you memorize the words? Why would you think about the words? Why would you be a disciple of a part of the culture that teaches you to treat women in a way that is so harmful to them and, frankly, harmful to your own dreams of relationship? We had a class recently exertion on a quest that just finished up and Mike and Carly are personal trainers and they spent a lot of time training people on creating a healthy life plan for physical well-being and psychological and spiritual well-being as, as well and one of the things that came out in that class was that became very evident and clear both in, in the teaching and in the practice of the people was that we can have a really garbage diet we can just eat all sorts of awful foods for ourselves and we don't always feel so bad while we're eating it but when we start to get away from that, when we start to eat healthy, that's when we start to realize it. So I know a lot of the people were starting to eat really healthy and do the things they were taught. And on July 4th, they decided they were going to take that as one of their treat days, one of their break from their, from their uh, diet days. And so they put in all the foods that they really like but aren't good for you. And you know what I heard through the grapevine? I heard everybody getting headaches right away and everybody feeling tired right away. You see, when you're caught in the bustle of normal life, we don't always realize the impact of unhealthy things on ourselves until we remove them. So let's look even further. What about what you watch or look at? Let's talk about erotic imagery or pornography. 
for many years in, the, in America, the Christian culture was the only one speaking out much against pornography. But in the last couple decades, increasingly, it's become something that uh, secular studies have been showing over and over again. Thanks, Dusty, for texting me. I forgot to put that on. No, we haven't played that yet. We're getting to it. <laughs> My, just getting texts from Dusty from the booth. Um, studies have been showing that it's uh, not innocuous in any sort of fashion. The studies have been increasingly showing that the more you look at erotic imagery and the more you look at porn, you are learning three lessons. You're learning the lessons that a real body isn't good enough. You're learning the lessons that one body isn't good enough. And you're learning the lesson that your wife's body is not good enough, men. Now, Single men consistently, naively say that, well, I can pig out on porn now, and when I'm married, my wife will meet all of those needs, so I won't need pornography. And the raucous laughter track plays, doesn't it? Because all of the married men in here who have struggled with pornography know that that's one of the biggest lies you could ever believe. Marriage does not solve the pornography issue. And in their more lucid moments, the men would tell you when they're not in the middle of being tempted, not being in the middle of being engrossed with pornography, they would tell you it has greatly damaged their marriage. It is a major factor in shutting down the desire of women to want to even have sex. It is a major factor in divorce. It is a major factor in incest. It is a major factor in affairs. It is a major indicator of rape. I want you to listen now to a person who... A famous person, many of you will know, and I want you to listen to his take on pornography. Kirk Franklin has sold more than 10 million albums in less than 10 years. He's a three-time Grammy Award winner and a seven-time Dove Award winner. His hit stomp from the triple platinum album, God's Property, made him a star with the MTV crowd. But Kirk's career came to a screeching halt a few years ago when his private, or should I say secret, life was no longer a secret. Kirk came clean and confessed his addiction to pornography. There's always that boy who's got the big brother who's got the magazines up on his bed. And that's how it starts. And the first time I ever saw one, I was maybe like about eight or nine when I, when I saw my first magazine. And from there... I was addicted. Yeah, I would say within our second year marriage, he tried to implement it within our marriage. You mm -hmm. know, watch this with me, honey. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You yeah. know, it made me feel dirty. It didn't make yeah. our um, our intimacy sacred to me. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. I, you know, I was like, I'm not watching it. I would get angry. Mm -hmm. I was like, no, I'm not watching it with you. Kirk's secret life ran amok while he traveled to promote his latest releases. At home, Tammy had no idea of the extent of Kirk's problem. I didn't see any evidence that he was doing it at home. He knew how I felt about it, so I, I, would, was. I would think was. that he was hiding it from I was. So you had a secret life? Yeah, I was doing it at home when she was asleep. You really? Know? Yeah, yeah, when she was asleep, I'd go upstairs, you know, yeah. yeah. How did you finally get to a point where this thing has got to be dealt with? We were in Los Angeles, and we were in the bed uh, that morning, just in the hotel, and we were laying there, and I said, baby, I need to tell you something. I said, I'm struggling with pornography. I mean, it is a struggle. I have a problem with pornography. It's a problem. And your response to him? My response immediately was just to be, be sensitive to it. What blessed me 
is that he did look at it as a problem, that it wasn't, you know, a lot of guys can have an attitude of, you know, it's normal for, you know, a it's man. It's a man thing. Yeah, it's a man thing. Yeah. And the fact that he wasn't coming to me like that blessed me so yeah. that I just began to just, um, you know, pray for him consistently. And I knew that I wanted him to know more than anything that this was something we were going to work through together. together. That's what's so weird about porn is, is that you have different people, even in the body, that feel different about it. Mm -hmm. you, know? you know what I'm trying to say? Mm -hmm. Like, there are some Christian men that I know that would say that I'd rather do that than cheat on my wife. When I've had to, you know, shed light on is that, dude, You're we are cheating, cheating on our wife. Yeah. We're cheating on our wife because whatever men think it, so is he. Yeah. So, so we're cheating. I wish somebody would have taught me a long time ago the repercussions mm -hmm. of sex. People can be set free from this, but they're going to have to admit they have the problem and they're going to have to come clean with somebody who's going yes, to hold them accountable. There's a process to it. Yeah. If I had been set free from this one, yeah. anybody can, because for years I even questioned, could I get free from this one? Mm. Because, I mean, I was, dude, I, I was doing albums, albums that people that God was speaking to, people were blessed by. And I was struggling with pornography. I mean, what we're seeing came out in 93. I was struggling with pornography. Storm came out in 97. I was struggling with pornography. Mm -hmm. I mean, these albums, God was speaking through and everybody else was getting their victory and walking and stuff, except for me. And I used to question and, and I almost began to wonder, what's going on? Mm -hmm. And what was happening, and this may help people, is that my victory didn't come by my emotional experience. My victory came through truth. Mm -hmm. When I was taught truth, that's when I got my freedom. Unfortunately, this is an issue that we struggle with, isn't it, a lot. Even a lot of people in church, even famous people in church struggle with it. And maybe hearing that, maybe for some of you who haven't fully owned the fact that it is a problem, maybe you're starting to say maybe, maybe it really is a problem, and that's great. And if you're a woman here and you're thinking maybe, maybe watching porn as part of our sex life really isn't healthy, maybe the feeling of feeling dirty that I've felt in doing that is actually harmful. It's a warning sign that it's harmful to my husband and myself, and I, I, hope you're, I hope you're hearing that and seeing that. You see, hiding, hiding this issue makes it stronger. The reality of hiding it only increases the lack of integrity between what we want to be and who we are, and a house divided in itself will not stand unless we open up and we're honest with people, honest with someone about it when we're struggling with it. It will get stronger, and we cannot have loving relationships and spend a bunch of time as a student of treating others as objects for our own sexual pleasure and not as beautiful human beings. Women, porn is increasingly in your lives as well. And it's doing the same damage to you that it does to men. It's making your, a real body not good enough. It's making one body not good enough. It's making your husband's body not good enough. And the studies are consistently saying that porn actually begins to rewire the way our brain works, that much like drugs do, and so we end up needing more and more to get the same fix, and we're less and less satisfied. And the accessibility is becoming such a huge factor. I mean, it's hard to even watch any HBO uh, miniseries or, or, or Showtime series without seeing vivid porn and vivid sexual interaction going on. 
uh, with almost complete, a lot of times, complete nakedness in those series. And then even, in, even in things that don't need it, like the miniseries that HBO did recently on the Pacific, which was the sequel to Band of Brothers about World War II, it's, it's, it's vivid sexuality, vivid nakedness and porn in, the, in, the, in it. it the, the question is, are the sitcoms, is the writing... Is the acting, is the entertainment, the comedy value of some of those things worth revisiting Hamburger Hill over and over again? The consistent exposure to messages and visuals that are harmful. I mean, we know this is bad for us. All of us probably assent to that. But why do we think it's still such an issue for us? It's because we keep revisiting things, revisiting Hamburger Hill. Jesus, Paul, and Peter are saying that they want us to have a view that every man, every woman we interact, whether in pictures or on TV, whether they're our spouse or they're our child or a parent or a co-worker, whether they're attractive or not, whether they're a mean, angry person or whether they're a kind person, whether they're a prostitute or, for that matter, even a rapist, he wants us to view them as a person We ascribe, we place honor on, even when they're not worthy of it, because they are, at the very least, potential co-heirs of us, of one Heavenly Father. Women, here's a couple additional applications. Both Peter and Paul are talking to women who have experienced significant oppressive attitudes towards them. That's who they're talking to. And the problem with the power of culture's oppression is that we grow up in it. We grow up in it knowing nothing else and we think it's normal. We don't see all the ways it has wired our hearts and our identity to respond to life around us. So the question for you is how has our culture viewing women as a commodity for sexual pleasure affected you women negatively? The invitation is to change the base of your identity to something much more solid in Christ. Something, frankly, it's really funny, even though our culture sexualizes everything, the reality is if you get the biblical culture identity that Christ wants you to have, sex will even be happier for you and more free for you. Additionally, women, it's easy for you to become trapped in pursuing relationships with other men through, even your husbands, through acting according to their expectations. So when Peter says your, your beauty should not come from outward adornments such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes, he's not saying those things are wrong. He's not saying we can't do those things. He's refocusing our focus in verse 4, saying this, Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. And the lesson for all of us men and women both is what Peter is doing is he's giving us a truth about our lives from the world of fishing. Do you know how a fisherman determines what he baits the hook with? It's kind of an obvious answer. Whatever the fish are bait- biting on, Right? Women, if you fish in your dating relationships or even in your work relationships with men by flirting with your body or by attraction, you will attract body snatchers. And the older you get, we all know the body fades. Why would we want to fish for, find, and build relationships upon something so fading? I mean, plastic surgery and Botox are only going to work for so long. At some point, they don't work anymore. 
And the point of what Peter is saying is he wants us to base our love and our connection and our relationships on something that doesn't fade, something that's built from the inside out, kind of our VBS theme from this week. Your, see, your identity, how you view yourself, attracts someone to you who wants that identity. If in dating you become accustomed to getting people to want to date you, and getting them into your life by people who treat you as a commodity, then you will attract someone who wants that and who wants to treat you as a commodity. Men, to the level you have attitudes towards women as ob- that they're objects of sexual pleasure and you allow yourself to be a student of that, you will attract a mate who's used to be treating, being treated as a commodity. And that kind of love has so many potholes and so many bridges out in the road of life. Let me close with this and talk about why I am not promoting a radical, weird, record, and book-burning ceremony by explaining what I am doing today. Because the problem is whenever there's a radical record-burning or book-burning ceremony, it's a result of overly religious, uh, this disconnection and this antagonism towards culture around us. And frankly, I still regret um, some of my participation in that in the past and wish I still had some of those albums that I burned years ago. And the fact that we invite uh, groups to play secular music, the popular secular music at our patio nights, is just one reflection of why we want, of how we want to stay engaged at the, every possible level with our culture. But what I'm asking you to do today is to practice one of the age-old spiritual habits: fasting. The Bible talks about fasting in many respects. It talks about giving up food. It talks about, or like Daniel, giving up unhealthy food or giving up other things for a time. Isaiah 58 defines um, fasting this way. It's It's the pulling back from the normal to check our hearts and ensure they're fully free and focused. And then out of that refocusing, to re-engage life. You see, the purpose is to see more clearly the effect things are having on us that are often lost in the bustle of life. So Isaiah 58, for example, says a true fast is checking our heart and how we treat others at work. Are we treating them as only the bottom line? As, as Are we using them for our own purposes? Or are we truly empowering the best in them and thinking about blessing them? Or it talks about our heart toward money. Is it caught up in greed and avarice? Or are we truly free to bless our family the way we should, to, to be about the mission of God and to relieve the plight of the poor? and oppressed as we really should. To pull back from our normal patterns, discern our heart, and re-engage with a more appropriate focus. So today, a fast might look like pulling back from the music and the shows that you're watching for a time period. For some of you, that may mean you've got to get a whole new playlist. You may have to pick a whole new set of, uh, set of movies and shows you're watching but taking time away from that to refocus and, and then also refocusing our thoughts on doing things that bring honor and respect in the area we want. See, a fast is not just pulling back, but it's also doing something positive in its place. Then, after a while, reintroduce some of those things that you think, well, I'm not really sure I needed to let that go, but I let it go just to be safe, just to see. And maybe reintroduce some things and see if your heart remains free. 
and rightly focus. It's kind of like the July 4th diets. Reintroduce it and see if you have headaches. If you reintroduce that behavior, that music, that, that show back in, and all of a sudden you're struggling again at a more intense level with lust and, and inappropriate views of the opposite sex, then get rid of it. It's unhealthy. Now let me say this. Because sex is one of the most powerful forces on earth, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen if you engage this process. Initially, your temptation and your thoughts and your lust will be stronger. So if you want to do this, I want to invite you to mark your calendar. Pull out your iPod, pull out your iPad. Go to a month from today, one month from today, and write a calendar appointment in that day saying, I am going to start testing reentry today. You'll know what that means a month from now. A month from now, you're going to start saying, well, some of those shows, some of those songs I'm not sure I needed to get rid of, I'm going to bring back, and I'm going to try them again, and I'm going to start testing it today. The goal is to let God lead you and let the freedom of your heart lead you because your standards may not need to be the same standards as the person next to you. Let the freedom of your heart and the Holy Spirit lead you instead of somebody else's witch hunt standards in this process. And here's the promise. If we will trust that God's view of us and God's view of the opposite sex is better than ours and learn to live in it, we will experience beautiful stuff. Singles, you'll actually find the mate that you really, really, really dream of. Married couples, your marriage is going to be so much better. And frankly, your sex life is going to be a whole lot more free and a whole lot more fun and a whole lot better if you get the right view of yourself and of the opposite sex. Will you do the work of fasting to pull back, to discern your heart, and discern God's best? Lord, thank you for being here. Lord, I pray that you just touch each and every one of our hearts right now. Father, this is hard stuff because we can deceive ourselves so easily because we just get going and we just say, I'm handling it. I'm okay. I'm handling it. But Lord, sometimes we just do need to step back because we're not handling it. We don't realize it. So Lord, I ask that you'd give us the courage and give us the focus, give us the discernment that your Holy Spirit would come and make this a process for each and every one of us that wouldn't feel heavy, it wouldn't feel harsh, it wouldn't feel condemning because you're not standing there condemning us. It would feel loving, it would feel inviting. And that we would discover the depth of your love for us and the depth of your love for others in a more beautiful way. In Jesus' name, amen. If you felt like God was speaking to you and you're saying, I, I need to own this as a change area for me, don't leave today without talking to someone. Talk to your spouse, talk to a friend, talk to one of us who will be back waiting for you to pray. If you keep it silent, if you keep it hidden, you're going to lose the battle. You're going to be stuck by yourself on Hamburger Hill without, some, without any help. If you came today and you have a healing need or you have any other need, we'd love to pray for you. So thank you for joining us this morning. Go in the grace of God. You don't need to feel condemned about this morning. You need to just deal with it graciously because God loves you and he's inviting you to freedom. God bless. Have a great day. Thank you for listening. 
Join us at Quest as we walk with one another in friendship while discovering the reality and goodness of God together. For more information and service times, visit us online at go to quest.org.